Hello, welcome to today's section of U.S. History since 1877. My name is Dr. Melissa S. Mocker, and today we're going to be talking about President Harry S. Truman and containment. We're specifically going to start to look at the United States at home during the early Cold War in the 1950s. So when the Cold War comes home, there's this conversation globally about freedom versus totalitarianism. The Cold War was described by the United States as a struggle between these two opposites, with the idea that the United States represented freedom because they were defining freedom as a democratic election process, it represented a form of government, and then they depicted the Soviet Union as a totalitarian state, not without cause, because the Soviet Union did maintain a very strict one-party system where the communists were the only legal political party, and there was a lot more direct state control over people's lives. Now, during the same time period as we're having this struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union, there's a move towards defining once and for all what exactly human rights are. And the term human rights dates back to the mid-1800s and the abolitionist movement or the movement to ban or abolish human slavery. Angelina Grimke, an American abolitionist, was one of the first people to use the phrase human rights and to make the argument that human rights were rights that all people should have regardless of where they lived or who they were by virtue of being humans, essential basic rights. And after World War II, the United Nations actually moves to try to come up with a universal definition for human rights. So the United Nations in 1946-47 starts to work on a universal declaration of human rights. This for them was the defining nature of what rights you should have as a human being, regardless of where you lived. Now, getting its member states, including the United States and the Soviet Union, to adopt this definition of human rights was tricky. And so the United Nations, in order to encourage adoption of this platform agreement by its member states that these were universal human rights that they would recognize and protect, broke this declaration into two pieces, civil and political rights, and then economic, social, and cultural rights. The United States seizes on the civil and political rights section of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. This focuses on things like free and fair elections, a representative form of government, free speech, and other civil liberties. And the United States said, well, of course, this is how we define human rights. The Soviet Union does not live up to human rights as defined by this section, but we do a pretty good job at, at this. The other portion of the declaration, the economic, social, and cultural rights portion, was championed by the Soviet Union, who made an argument that the United States was repeatedly in violation of this section. So economic, social, and cultural rights, that portion of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, covered things like a basic standard of living, equality, especially between the sexes, a lack of discrimination towards different religious and minority groups. And the Soviet Union said, well, our communist state is set up in such a way that we do this better than the United States, because look at how women are not equal to men. Look at how minorities are facing legal segregation in places like the American South. So the Soviet Union really clings to this half of the Declaration 
on human rights and says, you know, we're doing this well, the United States sucks at this. The United States, in fact, will take until the early 1990s to formally adopt the civil and political rights piece of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And the United States has never actually officially adopted the second half, the economic, social, and cultural rights portion of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. So this was an attempt by the United Nations to come up with a a basic standard for all humans, regardless of where they lived. But again, this gets caught up in the Cold War with the United States arguing that when it comes to human rights, civil and political rights, are more important, the most important, whereas the Soviet Union instead argued that, well, it's economic, social, and cultural rights that are the most important. So an attempt to give humans access to basic rights across the board that was not meant to be politically partisan becomes politically partisan because of the Cold War. Like many other things, it becomes caught up in this struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. And in fact, this divide on human rights makes it so that the NAACP or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in the United States actually petitions the United Nations in 1947, arguing that the Jim Crow system of segregation in the South is a violation of the UN Universal Declaration on Human Rights and therefore needs to be formally investigated. So this was one example of how on the home front, now talking about the home front in the context of the Cold War and not World War II, at home, The Cold War is not a purely domestic issue, but some of these issues like the civil rights movement, which we're going to talk more about today, also happen in a very international context. So the basic idea of human rights becomes so hotly contested because different states have different political agendas for contesting this. For the United States, the economic, social, and cultural piece in the early late 1940s and early 1950s was very much harder for them to realize given the system of segregation in place in the South, given the tensions still existing between different racial, ethnic, and religious groups. So this is one of the reasons why they shy away from this portion of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and instead focus on the things that they are doing well, which in this case is a more representative form of government and more civil liberties. Now, Harry Truman, who we mentioned in our discussion of World War II, takes over as president from Franklin Delano Roosevelt upon his death in 1945. So Harry Truman had actually only been Roosevelt's VP for a few months because he was not Roosevelt's vice president in his previous term. So he had only been vice president since early 1945 and then all of a sudden becomes president. And Truman's main experience in politics prior to that point was being a senator representing Missouri. So Truman is is thrust into this leadership position at a very difficult time in U.S. history. Obviously, he is tasked with wrapping up World War II for the Americans. And then as we go into this Cold War against the Soviet Union, Truman will become known primarily for foreign policy, largely due to the Truman Doctrine and embracing the idea of containment or trying to prevent the spread of communism to more places across the world. When we look at Truman's track record as the president at home, Truman's domestic policies look very similar to that of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's. In many ways, Truman seeks to extend Roosevelt's New Deal and to try to fill in the gaps 
of original New Deal programs and then to make logical extensions of the first New Deal. However, Truman is also going to have a difficult challenge in that the Democratic Party starts to show an early sign of their impending breakup. Now, they're not going to completely dissolve yet. This is more flirting with the we were on a break sort of separation here. But the Democrats definitely start to see the signs of rupture. The Democratic Party, since its formation all the way back in the early 1800s, had been a party of very different folks united under one political party. So what we're going to start to see is the coalition of these very urban northern and western Democrats with these very southern rural Democrats is going to start to break apart during Truman's time in office, but the separation will not be officially complete until the age of Richard Nixon, who we'll talk about later. Now, one of the chief tasks at home that Truman had to deal with was navigating this transition from wartime to peacetime, or at least quasi-peacetime with the Cold War still happening. So, After the total war during World War II, we had to oversee this process known as demobilization or gearing down the economy from producing nothing but war materials, from running around the clock to crank these materials out as fast as possible, to now converting back to peacetime production, back to producing consumer products like we had before. And we also have to absorb now all of these veterans who are now returning home, they're being separated from the service and they would like to go back to their pre-war jobs and and go back to normalcy. In particular, 9 million men are all of a sudden now coming back to the workforce from the armed forces. And so this is a time where people are very nervous about a return to an economic depression that we will completely lose the progress, the economic progress we had made during World War II. So Truman decided to use this time to strike what he called his fair deal. So Truman works with Congress to propose further strengthening the social safety net by calling for a national minimum wage, health insurance, and expanding existing programs. Now, Truman's proposal sounds really good, but it gets held up in Congress, especially this idea about extending health insurance and health care access to everybody is a, a, still, as it, as it is today, a little touchy, a little bit of a political football. And so while Truman's working on this, we're going to see some level of disruption and dissent at home. In 1946, we have a strike wave break out across various industries. Merely 5 million American workers walk off the job to protest the spiraling cost of consumer products because, again, until these industries reconvert, there's a scarcity. And also the diminished buying power that their wages got, or what we call real wages. In other words, what you can actually get for the money that you make. Of these 5 million Americans who walked off the job, 1 million alone were in the steel industry. Part of this walkout is also about unions. So the unions had made a lot of gains during World War II as more and more Americans went into the industrial workforce. And there's a sense within the unions that they really want to continue this growth in membership by expanding into the South, what they called Operation Dixie. However, many workers in the South did not like these national unions 
because unions have been pushing during World War II interracial cooperation. So with the system of racial segregation still in place in many southern states, white workers objected to this idea of unions being completely colorblind when it came to their workers. Most of these walkouts ended peacefully. Many companies decided to raise wages at least a little bit once Truman got involved by establishing fact-finding boards and making it so that the federal government was a neutral mediator in this conflict between labor and business. However, 1946 was a midterm election year, and following the strike wave, there is a wave of public backlash towards these striking workers. The Republican Party does well in these elections, and in the following year, 1947, Congress passes the Taft-Hartley Act. So the Taft-Hartley Act was a restriction on labor to try to prevent future strike waves like they had seen during 1946. The Taft-Hartley Act gave the president the authority to suspend a strike by declaring a cooling off period of 80 days. So in other words, if workers declared their intent to strike through their union, a formal strike, the president could basically hit the pause button on that and say, you got to wait at least 80 days. The Taft-Hartley Act also outlaws sympathy strikes, which was workers in another industry striking in support of workers in a different one. And it also prevents secondary boycotts. The Taft-Hartley Act declares that there will be no closed shops. In other words, unions cannot demand that only union members be employed by a workplace. And as a sign of the times in the early Cold War, the Taft-Hartley Act also requires an official pledge of American loyalty by union members. We're going to be talking more about loyalty pledges next session when we talk about McCarthyism in the 1950s. One of the things that Truman really focused on in his domestic policies was on the issue of civil rights. Civil rights had really come to the forefront during World War II. We had already mentioned in a previous podcast and video that World War II had promoted for the first time the idea of non-discrimination in hiring and promotion through the Fair Employment Practices Commission. We also discussed how African Americans frequently experienced discrimination on bases and in towns bases were located on during the war, so much so that Secretary of War Henry Stinson kept a safe in his file about racial disturbances in the military. And following the end of World War II, Congress decides not to make the Fair Employment Practices Commission permanent. So at the end of the war, the Fair Employment Practices Commission becomes dismantled. So at this point, states take up the slack, and 11 states, including New York, pass state-level Fair Employment Practices Commission to continue mandating that you cannot discriminate in hiring and promotion on the basis of race, sex, religion, or any other category. With the end of World War II, we start to see a rise in states and cities also passing laws to try to minimize discrimination in things like housing, public accommodations, and education. In 1948, the, case, the Supreme Court case Shelley v. Kramer strikes down racially restrictive covenants, which means that you can no longer put in the deed of a property that it can only be occupied by white people. And we start to see a rise in voting registration and a decline of lynching. The rate of black voter registration in the South increases by sevenfold during World War II, as many of these uh, returning veterans declare that, you know, they are going to exercise their civil liberties and rights. Law enforcement begins to take lynching 
as a more serious crime and actually prosecute it, whereas before vigilante mobs targeting African Americans for violence and killing them through extra judicial means had frequently just been overlooked by local law enforcement. Now it's starting to be taken seriously. So the states are largely taking the lead on these changes, but Truman gets a commission on civil rights formed And he tasked them with filing a report on what the federal government can do to ensure access to civil liberties by everyone. And so in 1947, this Commission on Civil Rights issues a report called to secure these rights. And it suggested that the federal government should get actively involved to be able to combat racial discrimination, that leaving it to the states alone to pass non-discrimination laws was not enough, that it would result in very uneven application. And so it was the federal government's job to use the power of the government to help to ensure that minority groups were not discriminated against. So this played a role in Truman running for election in 1948. In 1948, Truman announced that for the first time in the history of the Democratic Party, there would be a civil rights platform, that part of his formal election platform would focus on what he and the party intended to do on civil rights. In this same year, 1948, Truman desegregates the military by executive order. So for the first time since the American Revolution, the armed forces will no longer be segregated by race. And as part of his civil rights platform, he asked for federal laws banning lynching and poll taxes and for the Congress to consider other sorts of broad reforms targeting systemic racism. Now, Truman's embrace of a civil rights platform provoked a crisis within the Democratic Party. The liberal wing of the Democratic Party, led by folks like Hubert Humphrey, specifically pushed to add civil rights to the official platform of the party nationally, which led Southern Democrats, who objected to the civil rights platform, to walk out of the convention and to form a coalition with some Southern Republicans. So these Southern Democrats walk out of the Democratic National Convention, and they form their own third party, the States' Rights Democratic Party. But nobody really calls them that. Everybody else calls them the Dixiecrats, these Southern Democrats who objected to including a civil rights platform in the election of 1948. The Dixiecrats argued that they were the party that was supporting freedom, and that Truman's desire to use the federal government to enforce civil rights would, and I quote, convert America into a Hitler state, end quote. Okay, so that the federal government was imposing their will on states, particularly southern states, and infringing upon the rights and freedoms of states. The Dixiecrats chose as their presidential nominee Strom Thurmond, a, at the time, the governor of South Carolina. After this, he will be a very long-serving member of the Senate. Strom Thurmond, as he was campaigning, claimed he was not a racist. He simply opposed excessive government. However, he also famously said during this campaign, and I quote, All the laws of Washington and all the bayonets of the army cannot force the Negro into our homes, into our schools, our churches, and our places of recreation and amusement. Strom Thurmond will live to be about 101. He dies in 19, or excuse me, in uh, 2003. And 
after his death, it's revealed that he actually had a secret love child with his family's black maid when he was a young man. And while he publicly espoused uh, ideas that we would today be consider racist and opposed the expansion of civil rights uh, throughout the South and, and opposed the end of segregation, he still continued to at least tacitly support his secret daughter throughout her life. Now, there was another challenge within the Democratic Party from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party who argued that Truman wasn't doing enough in terms of civil rights. So they launched their own party, the Progressive Party, and they nominate Henry Wallace as their candidate. The main difference between Wallace and Truman was on what to do over the Cold War. Wallace promoted an idea of international cooperation. So he said that we should not be antagonistic towards the Soviet Union. We should not be trying to see who can build up the most you know, nuclear arsenal the fastest, but instead we should work together as a broader coalition. So this now means that Truman has challengers from within his party, both in the form of the more conservative uh, Democrats, the Dixiecrats, Strom Thurmond, and the more liberal Democrats represented by the Progressive Party and Henry Wallace. So this means that the Republican candidate in this presidential race, Thomas Dewey, pretty much, in theory, should only have to keep his mouth shut and let the Democratic Party implode because their votes now are being split between three different candidates. So because of that, Dewey, throughout this campaign, was very reluctant to campaign excessively or to answer questions and any degree of specifics or detail, counting on the dysfunction of the Democrats to split the vote. So in the 1948 election, everyone was so confident that Dewey would win because of the division of the Democrats that the Chicago Daily Tribune printed out as their headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. And this was based on early projections that Dewey was able to win not only the popular vote, but also the electoral college votes. However, something strange happens. Truman actually ended up winning, and not by a small margin either, but he ends up winning the electoral college 303 to 189. So this is the story behind the iconic picture of Harry Truman holding up a newspaper declaring that he'd lost, because in this case, he had won and the Chicago Daily Tribune just called the race the wrong way and too early. So this is a lesson to folks working in media and broadcasting, right? It ain't over till it's over and make sure not to make definitive calls too early. So in this race, Dewey loses to Truman, but Wallace and Thurmond, as the Democratic alternates here, each received just over a million votes, so they don't have too bad of a showing. If you looked at the Electoral College map, Thurmond actually does manage to pull votes in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, and because Tennessee was doing proportional voting uh, in the Electoral College still at this time, he actually snagged one vote there too. Now, the Democratic Party will not, again, permanently split at this time. They will actually recover from this election and they'll run as unified Democrats for the next several election cycles. But this breakup over civil rights, this breakup over how far the party wanted to support the idea of the federal government taking a more active role in telling states that they could not discriminate, 
this is eventually going to drive a wedge, a permanent wedge, into the Democratic Party that we're really going to see Richard Nixon start to exploit when he campaigns success- ultimately successfully for president in 1968. Although, as we'll talk about in a future class, that's not the first time he tries to run for president. Now, the impact of Truman's civil rights platform is something that we really can't emphasize enough because Truman in adopting this is not necessarily only doing this for the goodness of from the goodness of his heart. Truman is also doing this because of the Cold War, right? This was a common critique by the Soviet Union that the United States did not give civil liberties and equal rights to all of its people. So this was Truman also trying to shore up what was a weak spot for the United States that was commonly picked on by the Soviets and propaganda. While this embrace of the civil rights platform does create a split in the Democratic Party, there will be this emphasis on unity and particularly conformity over dissent. And this is going to be a common theme throughout the rest of the Cold War, this emphasis on people towing the party line, on not wanting to rock the boat or speak out of turn, lest they also be considered suspect. And particularly at this point in time, the worst thing that someone could accuse you of was of being a communist. More on that point next time. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Smocker.